Listening Dog Media. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Michael Appleton started his playing career at Manchester United under Sir Alex Ferguson before spells at Preston and West Bromwich Albion. When injury forced him to retire, he moved into management, helping to navigate Portsmouth through administration and winning promotion with Oxford United. He became assistant manager at Leicester City in 2017. Welcome to the Offside Rule Exclusives with Michael Appleton. The Offside Rule Exclusives with Kate Borsay and Lindsay Hooper. Michael, let's start at Leicester. And you arriving in a team of self-made superstars. They'd won the league, Ranieri had come and gone, and Craig Shakespeare had taken over. Tell us about the call that you got to go and be a part of what could be a great legacy at Leicester. Um, yeah, I think it was, it was in, initially, um, I was actually ringing Craig regarding a couple of loan signings. Um, especially one lad that I've been tracking for a while who'd been at MK Dons, a lad called Harvey Barnes, Barnes who, who subsequently went to Barnsley. Um, and you were at Oxford at this yeah, point? I was, I was the manager at Oxford at the time and um, you know, I just said to him, um, listen, I'm, I'm looking to take a couple of players on loan um, and um, you know, I know they've been out before, but come on, you, you do me a favour, we've worked together before, etc. And we'd stayed in touch. And he, um, he basically pretty much just said, look, part that for a minute. What are you thinking about doing next season? And it was like, well, what do you mean? He said, um, well, I've got an opportunity. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a chance that I might need an assistant. And, you know, do you fancy? And that's pretty much where the conversation went, really. So you're at Leicester and you get there. And tell me what the atmosphere is like, because what that club went through in that season was pretty amazing it will go down in football folklore um but it's come to an end and there's a definite shift at that club tell me about the atmosphere that you walked into and what your remit as you saw it at that time what was your remit at that club yeah I mean obviously it was a great atmosphere I think um the season they won the league you know they 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 still talk about that and it was interesting because when I first came in I said to Craig I said for me too many people mention it. It's done. It's gone. Uh, whether it'll get repeated or not, I'm not too sure. Probably very, very highly unlikely, um, especially with the dominance of the top six as it is at the minute. And the top six are getting stronger each year uh, and very competitive. You know, I did say to myself, I think there's a few too many people talking about the, the time that we, you know, the, the club won the Premier League. It was a great achievement. I wouldn't want to sort of be disrespectful to everyone who achieved it and everyone was at the club and the fans and everything, but times move on and if you, you know, get stuck behind times, you know, you're going to, you're, you're literally going to come unstuck. But the atmosphere was very good, I've got to say. Um, the club and the people at the club felt they were in danger of possibly going down, you know, the, the season before. And to be fair to Craig and the staff, uh, they galvanised the players, you know, the players re- looked rejuvenated and the way they finished the season, apart from probably the Tottenham result at home, which was disappointing for them, the rest of the results went really, really well. Um, and the idea, and you could see the focus was just trying to build on that, build on the end of the season and um, what we sort of didn't expect and, you, you know, you can't really um, plan for is the, the fixtures when they come out. 
um, in that first six games to play obviously the likes of United, Chelsea, Arsenal and Liverpool makes it difficult um, but there was also a realism between the staff and the players about the amount of points that we could pick up in that time knowing that we had certainly had games beyond that that we could really you know, start picking points up and three points instead of the one points You've gone from being a first team manager at Oxford to then going into a number two role at a Premier League club. But you look at the personalities in football, certainly in those first team manager roles, and they are big personalities Mm. up and down the Premier League. Was there a part of you, because it was Craig Shakespeare that felt more comfortable going in with him, knowing that he'd been where you'd been and and potentially the fact that he was given a go as well? Yeah, definitely. I I must say that I'd had three fantastic years at Oxford as their manager uh, and the club was only going from strength to strength I must say there may be one or two other people in football but because it was Craig that was the reason why I took the job if for instance it was a manager that I'd never uh, worked with before or didn't know I 100% wouldn't have taken the job uh, absolutely 100% because you know that there was some strong things going on at Oxford and we were building and we were building a um, you know, a decent young side. So for me, there was a risk behind it because obviously, you know, you're going from a number one to a number two, but I just felt that the risk was um, not as bad as what it could have been if, if I didn't know someone. So, yeah, I mean, th- that was a dead simple one for me. If it was anyone else, probably than Craig, I wouldn't have took the job in the first place. Speaking to you now at this current time as we're recording the podcast, there is a prevalence coming to number twos in the, in the sense that a lot are getting a go. Um, and I think we've seen that more than ever before in recent seasons. And you actually were a roommate and the teammate of Darren Moore, who's mm. been given some temporary time with West Bromwich Albion just before we've recorded this. And do you take encouragement from that being an, a, more, a more easy route than it used to be? Yeah, it's a difficult one because there's probably two sides of it. Um, I think when a number two gets an opportunity, it's fantastic that the club has shown a bit of faith in people who've, who've worked their way through the ranks. The other side of it is that when, when managers do change, sometimes if you've had a number two who's been in caretaker charge um, and then he's still at the football club when the new manager comes in, there's always that risk of trust and whether you can work with someone and I think it's important to be yourself and be yourself uh, try and give as much information to the new manager as you possibly can and almost let him use you as a sponge I think from Darren's point of view he's been there a long time he's had a couple of spells at the football club playing and coaching um, and what he's done and I think he's been really really clever I've, I've spoke to Darren probably four out of the six games he's had probably four times before he's played the games just catching up and um, I remember the first time he rang me before the Swansea game, you know, he he rang me, I think it was on the Friday before, and I said to him, I hope you're not ringing me for like a bit of advice, like, you know, and, um, but he, um, he's done great. All he's done, he's he's literally, he's put his arm around them. Um, He's given them a little bit of confidence. They were obviously going through a tough spell. They didn't really know where the next win was going to come from. Um, he's probably took his foot off the gas, so to speak, in terms of training, etc. Made it a little bit more light-hearted, um, and that's definitely worked. And obviously, up until last weekend's result, they were doing fantastically well. I think if he gets the right people around him, support staff, uh, the lads who have done that so far with him, some of the lads that have come up from the academy, the likes of Jimmy Shan, have done really well. Um, but if he gets some good support staff around him, because of his um, his knowledge of the football club and obviously his love for the football club, it could be successful. Is it as hard as it's ever been 
to be an English manager or aspiring first team manager in the game today? And can you see a way out of that? How does that make you feel about your future? It is very, very difficult. I think um, I did a couple of interviews. I don't know if it was last season or the season before, one of the cup runs that we had at Oxford and it was it got sort of requoted time and time again and one of the things I said was it for me you don't get an opportunity as a British manager to manage in the Premier League the only time you get the opportunity is when you get promoted from the Championship into the Premier League you very rarely see unless obviously it's the, the, the four or five really experienced managers the likes of David Moyes Sam Allardyce Alan Pardew etc the young British coaches you very rarely get see them get the opportunity to go in at uh, the Premier League level. Unless that must be frustrating, though. It's very frustrating, but it, it's the world we live in. I think the ownerships of football clubs these days, obviously, there's a lot of foreign ownerships. Um, I think there's almost a... Well, there is there is a feeling that the, the foreign uh, coaches and managers um, have better experience, probably more knowledge of the game, which for me is a load of rubbish and I'm quite happy saying that. I've worked with a lot of people and I've been really, really fortunate. I've worked with British coaches, foreign coaches, a football coach is a football coach, you know, whether he comes from England, Spain, Portugal, whatever. And, you know, uh, whether he's black, white, orange, red, you know, at the end of the day, the, the best candidate should get the job, you know. Makes you want to think about moving to Portugal, change, <laughs> changing your name, assuming a different identity, cracking up a management record and then coming back. Yeah, it is. It is it's interesting as well because, you know, people talk about culture all the time when they come to England. Um, you know, and, but I see a lot of foreign coaches come to England and they don't really buy into the culture of the British game. What they do is they go, right, OK, well, this is how I do it and this is how I've always done it and this is how it's going to be. Whereas... A lot of the experiences that I know some of the coaches I've spoken to have worked in Europe and, and abroad and in South America, etc. They're expected to buy into the culture of that country and that, that type of people. So it's a little bit double standards, if I'm being honest. Um, and I think some, some, some coaches get away with that. But I suppose it's one of them where we know the environment we're working in. We've just got to try and do the best of it. You spoke earlier at Leicester about putting your arms around players. I found that an interesting statement because the game continually moves on. It's such a fast-paced managerial role, isn't it, nowadays, that you had the... I mean, you were schooled at Manchester United where Sir Alex Ferguson was renowned for his hairdryer treatment and shouting out players and calling people out for, for making mistakes. And now it feels like when people like Jose Mourinho do it nowadays, um, it, it often makes headlines because of the Luke Shaw, for instance, yeah. scenario. And I'm just wondering from a number two role at Leicester, whether your role is to be more like that with the players, to be the arm round the shoulder... I think it certainly was when I was working with Craig. I think going back to the first point regarding Sir Alex and, and now Jose, I think what's probably causing a little bit of stir because he's such a, an attention to the media and the, and the press side of things these days. I think what Sir Alex was very, very good at is that he, he did that and he could get away with that uh, knowing that the, 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 the type of players he had, you know, and he was very, very clever. Uh, and I can speak from experience in knowing which type of player needed a rollicking, which type of player needed the arm around the shoulder. But he would do it within four walls. Um, whereas, you know, Jose's come out and, you know, done it publicly uh, with certain players. 
and there probably is a time and place to do that at times because you know almost bring back a little bit of realism to the game because players do do get away with a lot of things but at the same time to try and keep players on board and, and with you I think it's important to try and manage that in the right way but in terms of myself certainly with Craig there was a recognition that you know if he went hard on the players I knew how to step back and pull one of them on a, on a one-to-one basis and vice versa sometimes where I felt that Right, okay, I think I need to go in a bit heavier. It's been a bit too light hearted for, for a few days or so, or maybe a couple of games. And different managers like different things, you know. So I've worked with managers where they just want one voice in the, in the dressing room and it's their voice, and you haven't really got that voice. So then you've got to make the opportunity of obviously when he's finished, maybe go around, speak to a couple of players individually. Are players more difficult to work with nowadays? Uh, more challenging, yeah, there's definitely, I think. Um, I think obviously the money in the game you know you, you, you basically from championship upwards you, you're working with millionaires and it's about and, and I got told that very very early I think it was Alex who mentioned it to me he said you, you know you need to learn how to massage egos and uh, if you can get that and understand that then then you'll you'll be fine and um, they they earn that much money these days they they have a real uh, sense of power and they know that they've, they've got a sense of power because ultimately you know there's only really one person who's gonna who's gonna really gonna cop it and that's the manager uh, the players very very rarely are the ones that um, will, will find themselves down the road so it is difficult it is challenging for me I just try and be myself and um, I'd be amazed if there's too many people in the game who dislike me uh, even when I've probably gone after them quite hard and, and I've been in, in the face a little bit. If I've ever done that, they've probably deserved it because I'm not a, I'm not a rant and raver, I'm not a scream and shout. People have a judgment of me when they look at me and get me completely wrong. And What do they judge you? Well, they, they look at me and they think, you know, um, a lot of people comment on the tattoos and the physique and all that, and they, they, I think they just see this, you know, bit of a meathead. Um, which is complete opposite to who I am. And I actually use it to my advantage. I use it to my advantage because, especially when I'm dealing with people at board level and stuff like that, or I'm dealing with um, directors or agents, etc. I actually quite enjoy when they, they underestimate me because I've got one up on them straight away because I've got a decent knowledge of the business side of the football as well as obviously the technical side of it. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Offside Rule TV, for exclusive video football content. Talking about secret knowledge, we hear that you've uh, got a master's degree in sporting directorship and you really are a scholar of the game. You took that course along with Ashley Giles, of course, famous in the cricket world. Is that thirst for knowledge and that wanting to prove people wrong against how they might judge you physically? Is that a driver for you? Did you did you take that course because there was a bit of something to prove there? That was definitely one of the reasons. I remember receiving the phone call. We were actually on holiday at the time with the kids and I, I think it was Darren Royal who initially rang me, um, who was involved in the course at the time. And, you know, he said, um, your name's come up two or three times about, you know, possibly being interviewed for this course. Obviously, I had to make sure he had the right qualifications and all that type of stuff and experience. But, yeah, that was definitely part, trying to prove people wrong. One of the other ones was definitely taking me out of my comfort zone. I do have to be taken out of my comfort zone. And, and this is probably one of the reasons why 
you know, I have to get that balance right in the next year or so, next couple of years of whether, you know, you establish yourself as a number two or you actually go back and be a number one. Because, you know, sometimes I can find myself, you know, being in the position I am at the minute and it being quite easy, you know, and not really challenging me as much as it should. So that was definitely, that was tough because since school, I'd done an HND in sports science when I was at, at Preston uh, and I did various other little courses, but I'd never really pushed myself from an academic point of view. And I wasn't particularly great academic at school. I think a lot of the skills sets that I have learned over the years is just by listening, learning, watching people, watching how it happens, how things operate. But then to read a, read an article and then, you know, try and take notes and referencing and all this type of stuff. Um, and I got, you know, a lot of help at the time uh, from my girlfriend, who's soon to be wife in the summer, but because um, she, she was very good. Are you saying you, you cheated? <laughs> <laughs> Hang on a minute. That isn't very sporting no. of you. No, not at all. But she, um, she was fantastic in terms of just a few little tricks, tricks of the trade mm. to, to, to get Writing my head round. Yeah, it was difficult at first. It was really, really difficult. But I actually believe it helped me at Oxford. You know, I was having this conversation with um, Mike Calvin, actually. The other day he's doing a new book and he was speaking to me about a couple of things. And I said... When I did my masters, it actually I think it made me better. I said, and I'll tell you the reason why. I said we used to go up to Manchester on a Wednesday and Thursday. I put my trust in the staff to look after the players on a Thursday once a month, and then on the Wednesday and Thursday uh, once a month I go up there, and it's the only time I ever switched off from football because it's the only time I ever could because if I didn't. I'd get lost. Mm. I'd be in the classroom, be listening to lecturers, and listening to the, the tutors, and I'd just literally, if I didn't solely concentrate on what was being said, I wasn't clever enough to stick with what was being said and then think about, right, should I have played him at centre-half? What about should I switch the wide players this weekend? <laughs> so it was the only time I ever switched off. But the players and staff, I think, noticed that when I came back on the Friday, when I'd been away, I was sharp, I was on it, you know, literally I'd had then two days to just wipe my head clean of football and I was on it again. There's a couple of directions that I want to go in from this because you've done all your coaching badges as well. So then education's obviously important to you. You're wanting to do more and more. And I'm wondering if this is inherent from your Manchester United days because I'm going to use the word again as schooling, but that is definitely what was going on, certainly in your era. So which players was it that you were being brought up with? And how much has that resided with you that upbringing through their academy in particular yeah I think I think it was fantastic from an upbringing point of view there was a real work ethic at the football club I think obviously that was massively driven by Sir Alex there was um there was an attitude that when he came in it was almost us against the world you know it was like you know if you're part of Manchester United you'll always be part of Manchester United and that never say die attitude and the will to win um, he expected the teams at every level to win every game, uh, but do it in a certain manner. But in terms of the players that we sort of came up with in that ranks, I was like the year year below the class of 92. So obviously there were so many good players and obviously players that have gone into be international players, the likes of Gary and Phil Neville, Paul Scholes, Nicky Butt, Ryan Giggs, David Beckham. And the list goes on because you've even got the likes of Keith Gillespie and Ben Farnley and these people, Robbie Savage, all these people um, that were around that group as well. So it was very, very difficult from a, from a playing perspective to try and compete with those players. But I think from my point of view, it was also a challenge that I, I quite enjoyed and 
out of my group, there was only really four that, that got professional contracts at the time. That was myself, Terry Cook, David Johnson and Ashley Westwood. And, and all four of us went on to play league football and, 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 and like obviously up to Premier League standard, which was great. But I think at the time there was such a... Um, I saw an understanding from everyone at the football club how big of a period that club, that that time was going to be, because obviously there's little things like obviously um, Alan Anson making the quote on on match of the day, or you never win anything with kids, and then to look what that group did over a period of time was was incredible, and to be part of that uh, for at least four or five years as I was there was something that I think set me up you know, massively going forward. There's an interesting theme arising here as well. You come to Leicester City the year after they've had Leicester City fever winning the title. You're the year before the class of 92. Yeah, Maybe yeah, there's a timing thing going on here, Michael. <laughs> the year after the class of 92. Yeah, well, I, I did, um, I, used to, I used to joke quite often to, to mum mom and dad at the time that, um, you know, it's all their fault, you know. Uh, the fact that <laughs> I'm, not part, I'm not part of the class of 92, I'm part of the class of 94. Three or whatever it is, ninety-one, yeah. whatever. Um, but no, yeah, I think um, I suppose you could look at it and say I've missed the boat a couple of times, but um, you know, hopefully my time will come. The second direction I wanted to go in, just from the, the back of the education talk and, and how much you take this seriously, is this new director of sport role. Is, mm. is that something you are shaping yourself up potentially for in the future? I think possibly, yeah. There's no doubt about it. I mean, I think, um, like I said, I think I've got a reasonable understanding of the business side of things. Um, That certainly helped me to manage upwards. And that was, there's been quite a few people who've rang me and asked me advice whether they should should take the course. And I've always been really, really positive because I think it does help to, to, as a manager, as a coach, it certainly helps you manage upwards, whether it's the director, whether it's the owner, the chairman and build that relationship because it can be important. But yes, it is something I want to do in, in the future. I certainly don't see it, hopefully, in the in the very near future, but um, I think the schooling I probably got, or the harsh schooling I probably got at Portsmouth was one of the driving factors behind it as well because, you know, within three or four weeks of me being there in my first management role, we find ourselves in administration. We end up having to go through two administrations and me having to deal with administrators from day one was a big eye-opener uh, for any young coach, manager uh, in the game. It's not something I'd advise. You missed out the bit about your owner having a Europe-wide arrest warrant <laughs> <laughs> back at the tail end of 2011. Yeah. You went into administration, well, Portsmouth did, you didn't, um, for a second time. The club owed millions of pounds. I mean, they, they owed it to players. Did, did they owe it to you as well? Not millions, obviously, but... Um, but owed you money as well so so working for a club for free yeah I mean what what happened was um, the administrators came in and I think I met him on the second or third day of the club going into administration and it was an interesting chat to say the least <laughs> um, I remember walking into the room and sat down once the pleasantries got out of the way after the first five minutes uh, it was to re- the reality uh, hit home and I, basically, I was basically told that I had to sack eight members of staff the following morning. To that point, I replied, it's not happening um, and you're going to have to sack me as well. They said, that's not an option. Well, I said, well, if that's not an option, me going, then you're going to have to sort of reevaluate how you're going to deal with it. And I remember at the time, 
the players had accepted and they'd done a deal through the PFA, they'd accepted 20, 20% reduction in their, in their wages. And that would have got the football club through to the summer. And that was the initial deal that had taken place. And what they said to us immediately was, they said, right, okay, initially uh, for the first, this month you, you won't be paid, but then every other month after that that you're working here, you'll, you'll get paid 50% of what your wages are. And we had no choice, so we had to accept that. So, But they said there's this a real issue with the staff from a joking point of view because we need to get to the end of the season. Now, I just said, well, how much basically do I need to try and keep them staff in place? And very, very quickly, they told me amount. I can't remember the amount, but we, we did a few calculations in, in the hour that we were there. And basically what I did was I got all the players in the dressing room the following morning, all the staff that, that, that they were thinking about sacking. Obviously, didn't say anything to the staff at the time until we were in the dressing room because I didn't want it to be second or third hand. And I spoke to the players and they just said, look, how important are these people who study? Um, and you're talking masseurs, physios, strength and conditioning guys. Um, and they're like, yeah, yeah, very important. Of course they're important. So I said, well, you know, as it stands at the minute, you're taking a 20% reduction. You know your money's fine because it's backed by whoever it is uh, regarding insurance-wise and you'll always get your money. Us, we, you know regardless of what we'll take there's no guarantees that we'll get our money back which is fine you know we're happy to do what we're doing but if you're not prepared to take another five percent and take yours to 25 percent these guys are going to lose the job and I remember it was Liam Lawrence at the time was the captain um and I just said look Liam I'll give you five minutes let's get this done quickly it's either a yes or a no and we move on and literally we walked, the staff walked out the dressing room and within 30 seconds, he's come outside and just said, right, tell him, done, 25%. So that gesture from the players at the time in difficult circumstances kept all the staff employed until the end of the season, albeit on 50% reduction, yeah. but he sort of kept him in a job until the end of the season. And that was just one of the learning curves that I went through very, very quickly in management early in your management yeah, career, yeah, right, yeah, to be yeah. dealing with all that. Yeah, and it, and, it, and it was difficult. And what what was even more difficult, and this this is what makes me laugh, because people have a perception and they you'll, you'll be judged, rightly or wrongly, you'll be judged on whether it's win percentages or, or yeah, but he only did that there and he got relegated there and stuff like that. And I laugh when, if anyone mentions about us getting relegated at, Portsmouth, I just laugh if it's... Ten point deduction. Exactly, you know, I, but it's not just that as well. Like I, when you actually tell a story, it was a ten point de- reduction and if we wouldn't have had that, we would have stayed in the league. We had to reduce the, the wage bill from around 30 mil or so at the time to about three million quid yeah. in January. Gosh. In January, you know. So we had to replace players who were on, like, good money. And by the way, rightly so, it wasn't their fault that the club went into administration to young players playing for academy clubs who are earning absolute peanuts. The Offside Rule exclusives are available to download for free via Audio Boom and iTunes. Can I mention Blackburn (laughs) in terms of clubs and you Mm. and slightly sticky situations? I was just going to say, it's a good job you like a challenge because then... As Kate said about Blackburn, it wasn't just Blackburn; it was Blackburn under the Venkies. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I think um, I think what happened was I'd spent twelve months at Portsmouth, and the last I'd say the last three months at Portsmouth consisted of me turning up for training, 
taking training in the morning, driving from the training ground to Fratton Park to have a discussion with either the administrators or potential buyers every single day for three to four months. And in the end, I've just thought to myself, do you know what, this, this isn't football management, this. One, I'm only getting paid 50% of my wages. Two, I'm not getting the opportunity to spend time with the people, the coaches, the players that I should be doing. Um, and it just, it just, it, it become, well, I just didn't enjoy the role. I just stopped enjoying the role and I thought, you know, this isn't for me. And then what I did was, and I mean this with the greatest respect because I've already put it out there, I, I made two really, really poor footballing decisions. One, I obviously took the Blackpool role initially. Um, that was more of a personal thing. Um, one, to be closer to, to my kids uh, who lived in Preston uh, with a mum. And two, um, I'd just met Jess uh, probably a few months earlier uh, and she was from Preston as well. So from a personal point of view, I was closer to my kids, closer to my now new girlfriend, etc. And I took a role on. Very, very quickly, I was offered the opportunity to go to Blackburn. And again, I took a role that I didn't do enough due diligence on. When um, Henningberg left and he'd had 56 days, whatever it was, my thought process was, OK, I know what needs to be done. I know you're going to probably need a bit of time. Surely they can't do that again, you know, like, and give such little time to someone, you know, to, to rebuild. So the whole time I'm going through it, I'm thinking, well, I'm thinking making sensible decisions, but when I look back and take a step back, I wasn't because I wasn't doing my due diligence properly. Um, and like I say, I left there very, very quickly. So I had two roles where one, I left on my own, my, my own choice. The other one, obviously I was sacked. And to this day, it's the only time I've ever been sacked in my career. Um, Blackburn, you know, I've always been at clubs and people have either head on it or, you know, look to, to get your services. So, so that was difficult. And I think I mentioned on, um, I did match of the day two actually of a, of a week, um, with Chappie and, um, we were talking about Sir Alex because it was the day after Sir Alex had the brain hemorrhage and I remember him inviting me uh, to his to Carrington about a week after I'd been sat by Blackburn and I've come in and um, knocked on the door he went it was just, it was just like acknowledged me looked at me he went go and wait round there I'm like, oh my God, like, you know, this is like, <laughs> I've not played for him for like 10 years, like, you know, it's like school teachers, like, oh God, what's he going to say now? So I was sat there for about 10 minutes and he was just taking a call and he was doing a bit of work and stuff. And then eventually he come to like the, the living area of his office and he gave me the biggest rollicking for about 10, 15 minutes, <laughs> like ever. And I just had to sit there and take it. But For taking that job? Yeah, for taking the job. Just, he just said, listen, why did he not ring me? You know, he said it's so important for young coaches and young managers now to do your due diligence and pick the club that's suited for you, the right clubs that are suited for you, and you have to speak to people and stuff. And listen, he, he gave me the rollicking, but it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me because when the Oxford opportunity come up and, and what that was about and how it happened, that type of advice and, and, and rollicking I got off Sir Alex was, was probably the hopefully the best thing that will happen to me going on further in my career. You have faced challenges. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about one of the biggest challenges of your career, if you're to look back on it, and I, and I know we're still early days in terms of management, really, but look back at your playing career and your managerial career. Is there a particular experience that you think now was a real mm -hmm. challenge, is a real challenge still? Who knows? 
Um, well, there's lots really. I think from a playing point of view, when I had to finish um, my career, that was that was very very difficult because the initial injury was a posterior cruciate injury. These days now, you don't really operate on your posterior cruciate. You just you maintain it and manage it, and as long as your anterior cruciate, the one at the front, is fine, you actually don't need your posterior cruciate. You don't need it um, now. At the time, I was advised that I need a reconstruction of my knee. You know, you, you trust and you know respect people to, to make them choices. As it happened, I went into an operation with one injury and come out with four injuries. Um, so there was two or three, I think, yeah, three major operations with three or four minor operations after that to try to, to sort the injury out. Obviously, there was a big legal case as well, medical negligence case against the surgeon. And these things happen, and it wasn't particularly great, but ultimately it cost me my career. You know, and I think the last time I kicked a ball in anger was I was 25 at the time. So it cost me 10 years of my career. I didn't actually retire until I was 27, um, doing two years rehab. And I, I just went into a little bubble because I was so desperate to get back. I mean... I was, you know, just I've come obsessed with training and, you know, being in the gym and getting myself right. And I was probably fitter than I've ever been in my life. But basically, to try and get on a training field and, and play and, and kick a ball, my knee just won't come cope with it. I mean, I, I come obsessed that much trying to get back playing. I, mean, I remember being in a gym on the um, cross trainer on some, some Sundays, and I would watch back to back. The Sunday games, so the, the Sunday special, like so, I'd watch two Start, games. But yeah, Stan and one, I'd watch two games, and I could. It was funny because you can see these like mirrors, but then the tellies are above the mirrors and stuff. I could see people behind me, like looking at me as if to say, "What is he up to? What is this guy? You know, he's how long has he been on there?" Type thing, and I just, I just got obsessed with it. And then, and then when I was told I couldn't play again, that was tough to take. It was a tough six months, um, and. I think the only thing that sort of got me through it was obviously the coaching stuff. What doesn't break you makes you, and, and that certainly was a big motivating factor for you to go on into coaching. And you've learnt a lot along, along a, a short time, but coming back to you, you suing the surgeon, it's so difficult, isn't it, to put a price on what your career could have yeah. gone on to be because you were still young, you were in your prime. As we know, you came through Manchester United. A lot of players that came through that academy, certainly around that period, yeah. were going on to have great careers. Yeah. Not only that, they were get going on to have great post-football careers. Mm. So 1.5 million or whatever it was at the time might have seemed like a lot of money, but how do you put a price on that? And could you imagine that comparably nowadays? Yeah, no, yeah. I, I try not to think about it too much, but yeah, no, I think... Um I think what a lot of people don't know as well and, and what did happen at the time is when you talk about a figure of 1.5 million at the time it was, that looks like I've, I've won a legal case. Actually, I come out of that thinking I'd lost. And the reason I'd lost two things is obviously, one, I'd lost 10 years in my career and I'm not ever going to get back um, regardless of how well you do as a coach and a manager. But the second one as well was what a lot of people don't realise is that actually in the case... The judgment was based on um, me that I would have had to retire naturally with the, the original injury that I had at the age of 30. So that so I didn't actually get judged and get, get 
uh, my judgment on the fact that I would have played until I was 35, I had, the, the judgment only went until I was the age of 30. And I suppose I was unlucky in a way because the judge that I had, knew he wasn't a football fan, he knew nothing about football. And again, that's just a little bit of how unlucky I was at the time because it could have been very, very different. We could have had a judge who was very impressionable and knew Sir Alex Ferguson, knew Ryan Giggs, knew Gary, Le- Gary Neville, who all come and spoke for me in, in court. So Alex is there saying, you've got to ring me, you've got to speak to me, you've got to speak to your mentors in the game and, and do that going forward. I understand you've got a very good relationship with Roy Hodgson, mm. is that right? Yeah. No, I do have a fantastic relationship with Roy. I think um, I'd never met Roy until he, he, he'd come to West Brom. Um, obviously, I was aware of him and the success that he had abroad um, and obviously did really, really well at Fulham. Didn't have a great time at Liverpool and, um, you know, I think that was the only probably sour part of his career so far in terms of management. But I remember the very first meeting that we had was was interesting. You know, I had dinner with him the, the night before he took the job and I'm thinking, this might be a bit of a challenge. It was a massive age, uh, age gap between us. But I think that one of the things that, why we hit it off, off so well and now we stay in touch all the time is that we had a little bit of a a little bit of a disagreement probably about a week into the job and it was quite heated and it was in front of the players and there was stuff said out on the, the pitch and I, I give as good as I got like probably more than as good as I got and you're thinking well hold on a minute he's the manager and I'm like the new assistant manager maybe I, I shouldn't have done that but I was fuming and maybe really fuming at the time and I remember I remember sitting in the coach's office outside his, his office, the manager's office. I was sitting there waiting for him. And it was funny because a lot of the other staff were coming in off the pitch and they were like looking at me and going, whoops, and then like walking straight back out because they knew I was fuming. Like, so um, anyway, he came in and I was, I was honestly, I was so ready for the biggest rare up bust up you can ever imagine. And he just shown his experience straight away. And, and straight away he just came in and went, well, Michael, I thought that was fantastic. I thought the players responded really well today. Well done, good job. You know, let's look forward to tomorrow. And it just knocked the wind right out of my sails. Like, I literally, I went from being right up there, ready to, you know, go to war to, oh, right, OK. And then literally after that day, and, it, and it, that probably wasn't the only case, but I think the, the respect that he had for me probably went through the roof that I was prepared to go toe-to-toe with him in front of people, you know, and obviously, uh, you know, the rest is history, really. Talking about history, there's some history to be made with you. I know we're still early in your career, and um, we're going to wind things up now by wishing you the best and you sharing with us dream job. Throw it out there. What is it? Well, I've got lots of dream jobs, and they're all different steps. There's loads of clubs that I would love to manage. Have you got it planned out? So well, not not really. There's lots of clubs out there that I'd love to manage because I've got an association with, but I think it's difficult for as painful as it looks at times to the people who've taken the role. I think being manager of England has got to be the, the dream and pinnacle of any manager's career. Although in saying that, I think it'd be very very difficult to top being manager of Man United. Well, you've got two very astute managers in uh, Roy Hodgson and Alex Ferguson to lean on if those opportunities arise. Thank you for talking to us and the offside rule, Mark. We've uh, loved chatting to you today and best of luck with the new season. Thank you very much. Looking forward to it. The Offside Rule Exclusives is produced by Offside Productions and edited by Lucy Lavery. Sports Social Podcast Network.
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.